Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today we're broadcasting from the studios of the University of Technology Sydney, or UTS. We've travelled to Sydney with support from Shinwarazi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly on Chinese labour, civil society, and rights. Today, our guests are Wanning Sun from UTS and Yingjie Guo from the University of Sydney. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Class was central to communist China after 1949. Your revolutionary class defined your existence. Four out of five stars on the Chinese flag, still raised every day in schools around China, represent the approved classes in 1949: workers, peasants, the petty bourgeoisie, and the national bourgeoisie. The largest star on the flag is the party, which soon got rid of the bourgeoisie. Never considered for the flag were the nine bad categories: landlords, rich peasants, counter-revolutionaries, bad elements, rightists, traitors, spies. Capitalist rodeos and intellectuals, who all suffered for their bad class backgrounds. In rural China, they would struggle to find a partner, and in urban China, where the state controlled all the jobs, the situation was even worse. These class labels or hats were inherited and could never be removed. The workers, peasants, and soldiers were lauded as the backbone of society, and Mao's most famous exhortation was "Never forget class struggle." But over the years, a funny thing has happened. While Mao is still revered by many, China has forgotten class struggle. It seems, no one talks about class anymore. Scholars have dropped the word altogether, preferring to talk about social strata. While there's now a hotline to report spies and traitors, the others in the nine bad categories find themselves lauded by a party that welcomes capitalist rodeos in its ranks as representatives of advanced productive forces. In this program, we ask what happened. Yingjie, how did the party get away with doing away with class? One of the most fundamental paradoxes about class in China today is something that eminent literary writer Yu Hua has commented on. That is to say. In the past, that is during the Mao era, the Chinese Communist Party got rid of classes, especially the exploiting classes, but continued to talk about class struggle. Today, in the eras of Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin and Xi Jinping, some of the classes which were got rid of during the Mao era have come back, but the party is refusing to talk about class struggle and even classes, as Graham mentioned. Yingjie. I guess, in some ways, the middle class is the new、uh, class par excellence, in that everyone seems to want to belong to it. How has this sleight of hand been managed to get most of the Chinese people, according to surveys at least, to believe that they're middle class,、um, as high as two thirds, according to some surveys? How has this trick been performed in many ways, and and how many people actually count as middle class in China? That's quite arbitrary, actually, because it depends on the criteria by which you define the middle class. I quite often call the Chinese middle class a myth. It's a myth in many ways because one of the criteria is actually income. That's arbitrary because the government can say if the household. Has an annual income of hundred thousand yuan, then you belong to the middle class. But there are also other criteria which are very difficult to to define: education, soldier, and occupation, and many others. 
even though the proletarians are on the national flag, the peasantry on the national flag, you don't want to belong to the peasantry. And it's not cool to belong to the peasantry or the industrial proletariat. The real class to belong to is the middle class. And there's a whole discourse around the middle class. And no matter where you look, if you look at Chinese sociology, most Chinese sociologists will tell you that the ideal society, a modern ideal society, is an olive-shaped society with a small top, small bottom, but a big middle. That is the middle class. A not-so-ideal shape is actually a pyramid shape with a small a top and a very big bottom. And all theories would tell you that a middle class has a very positive role to play in social progress in the evolution of Chinese society. And they have all kinds of qualities which are good, such as liberal-minded, open-minded, well-educated. They are advocates of democracy and individual liberty and so on and so forth. So the middle class is really the class to be, but the question is whether that class really exists as many theorists define it, because if you define it by income, then that comes back to the question, uh, whether income is going to have a huge impact on what theories call consciousness or agency. Wang, you've done research about migrant workers who have become this new underclass. I mean, according to traditional class consciousness, workers should be the backbone of society. How did they kind of slip down to become this new underclass, which is kind of despised by a lot of Chinese people? Yes, indeed. Rural migrant workers is a very, very ambiguous term, both in theory and in reality. In Chinese, rural migrant workers are referred to as nonming gong. Nonming means peasant, gong means worker. So it's a kind of paradoxical by definition. It's that kind of paradoxical, ambivalent identity of these people um, that expressed both in the policy sort of um, sort of language as well in the uh, sort of uh, language of the governance as well as the popular imagination of who these people are. Uh, Roughly speaking, we're looking at around 270 million people who have uh, left their home in the village and come to the city to seek various kinds of employment. These people have a lot of problems because the most important and obvious one is that they still have what is called rural hukou. Hukou uh, means household registration system. So if you actually are a rural person, even though you have worked in the city for, say, two decades or something, if you still have rural uh, hukou, you're not entitled to, to an entire range of goods and services that a local residents take for granted, such as education, subsidised housing, children's schooling, and most importantly, healthcare. Some people, people from outside China, look at this system and you call it two-tier system or call it a differentiated citizenship. It's an extremely systematically enshrined system that actually supports this kind of inequality, if you like. So these are the people who have given a lot of decades of their life making sure the country continue to grow and GDP continues to grow, but their basic rights are still not guaranteed. So in that sense, they are 
really the underdogs. And they are also different from workers and that we normally associate as the working class in China. Because the workers in China actually have urban hukou. They have being employed by the state enterprises in China. So even though they might have been laid off, uh, they are, their identity is still state enterprise workers. And the state enterprise workers in the city see the rural migrant workers as competitors, as people have stole the jobs. So there is actually no, not really much solidarity, if you like, between the traditional notion of the proletarian industrial workers and the, the rural migrant workers. Mm. And, and proletarian is a very interesting word in Chinese. In Chinese, it's very literally translated as the class without property, which in many ways really defines Chinese society these days. Have you got a foothold on the urban property market or have you exactly. not? Yeah. And if you're locked out or you're in a, a mortgage you can't afford, um, then you really are in a different class to the rest of society. One of the really interesting things about your research and that I've followed over the years is that your fieldwork involves going out and interviewing migrant workers. One of your most recent bits of research, I believe you show them a De Beers ad for diamonds. What sort of reactions do the workers have to that sort of ad? Isn't this just simply something literally beyond them yeah. financially? I chose uh, De Beers ads because the De Beers ads actually got advertised in CCTV for quite a few months running. The product is the engagement diamond ring. It's a very expensive engagement diamond ring. And I talked to the company that actually produced the ad and got to know a little bit about the thinking behind this ad. And their idea was to promote this as a luxury goods that are associated with middle-class luxury sort of living. But at the same time, they also want to promote the idea of this luxury good being democratised enough so that the people from different strata could actually aspire to buy this. have a whole range of scenarios basically selling the idea of romance to the people. So I thought that would be very interesting because a real diamond ring would be beyond the capacity of a rural migrant. So I would actually like to see how they actually see this ads and talk about it. So I actually showed it to them and it is quite a gender-specific kind of responses. Rural migrant men who either are not are married and trying to find a girlfriend or who have found a girlfriend and trying very, very hard to raise enough money to get married. When they see this ad, they feel really, really angry and frustrated. Mm. And some say, I already have enough trouble raising money to, to pay for this marriage. And now you're giving her the idea that I now have to buy an engagement ring or I'll be seen to be mean. So one of them actually, and I said, so what would you do if you see this ad? He said, oh, if I could do it, I'll just block it. I'll just uh, switch it off. I hope that you won't see it. Mm. Whereas when I show it to women, they will say, oh, so romantic. <laughs> oh, it's so lovely, so romantic. Mm -hmm. And then they say that I don't think I can afford it. I don't think my fiancé or my boyfriend or my husband can afford it. But I still like the idea of romance. Mm. And if it is not a diamond, a piece of gold is fine, a piece of silver is also fine, but it's got to show me something. It is the symbol of something else. So they still aspire to that notion of romance, even though it's outside their mm -hmm. price tag. Yingjie, it seems that the idea of class in today's China is quite aspirational and perhaps is to a certain extent also built on consumption. Is there social mobility in today's China? Can you change class? You can change class, but it's extremely difficult. As I said, the 
middle class is the class to be, and that's an aspiration. It's in many ways also a myth. The lower classes, whether you accept the term or not, aspire to be the middle class. Even the new rich aspire to be the middle class. The main reason for that is that the rich people tend to be perceived as vulgar. There's a Chinese term for it, hao. You've often seen as country bumpkins. And they have made their millions, but they don't have a good education. Mm. They are not cultured, mm. so to speak, in Chinese. Many people prefer to be rich, but they don't want to be classified as the new rich. They prefer to be classified as the middle class. So in that sense, yes, the middle class is an aspiration. I mean, you said it's, there's only really limited class mobility. It's yes. quite difficult to, to move classes. Why is that? Well, the classes are changing, but if you, if you look at mobility, there's a fair bit of research. For example, uh, Professor David Goodman and his team has done a fair bit of research on that, looking at the trajectory or the journey that a lot of new rich entrepreneurs have traveled in the last 30 years, and they even go back further. One of the interesting findings is that many of the new rich started to have some background in business two or three generations ago, even before 1949. And most of the new entrepreneurs are deeply embedded in the party state system. That is to say, they have friends, family members, relatives who are party members or officials in the party state system. So in that sense, you need a long history of capital accumulation, mm. if you like. So it's not the economic capital we are talking about, it's the cultural capital, is the social capital, or various kinds of networks you need to draw on. Mm. And that takes a long time to build. And even though during the Mao era, the party tried to get rid of some of the networks, that didn't really work. Some just lay dormant, and they came back again as soon as the conditions appeared again under the new reform and opening up environment. Are you saying that the Communist Party sort of aim at kind of restructuring the classes actually didn't work? The Communist Party tried to elevate two classes above all other classes, industrial workers and peasantry. And they were called, during the Mao era, the masters of the country. They had that symbolic status, and during the Mao era, their economic status and political status certainly rose. But in the reform era, many industrial workers in the peasantry have lost out. So the class situation for them is kind of back to what it was pre-1949. Exactly. So as the government stopped promoting the industrial workers and the peasantry politically and allow um, all kinds of members of society to get rich first, it is the people who have all kinds of capital, political, economic, symbolic, and social, who have thrived under reform. Yeah. And the people who had those business skills before 1949 had a huge advantage under the new environment. So to what extent do you think the notion of suzhi or the notion of personal quality has made it possible to get rid of talking about class and also to, I guess, allow the workers and peasants to slip back without too much complaint in the sense that suzhi makes 
your position in society a result of your own personal level of education, your own personal level of refinement, and thus your personal responsibility, rather than your relationship to the means of production in Marxist terms. So to what extent, in a way, has never forget class struggle been replaced by never forget soldier? That's right. So soldier is a neutral term. And it's replaced class in many ways, certainly in a discursive sense, um, because it's not politically safe or it's not even politically correct to talk about class in many situations. So instead, people talk about soldier, and that's neutral and that's widely acceptable. Soldier is a package that includes many, many things, attributes that people aspire to, or uh, values and attributes that the government is promoting. So it's all packaged in that one term, soldier. Behind it, class still exists because, as I said, the new rich are not generally perceived to have high soldier. And the lower classes, the workers and peasantry, are not generally perceived to have high soldier. So now the class which has high soldier is the middle class. Well, and can, can you think of reasons why ordinary Chinese people are reluctant to talk about class? One of the reasons that I think uh, I could come up with is class, class struggle, class enemy, all these words were the everyday language of the socialist era, particularly during the Cultural Revolution. And to ordinary people who have lived through that period, it's extremely traumatic. And now they've come out of this and they do not really want to be dragged back to that era again. So when you talk about class, they think you want to actually relive that experience. You want to go back to that era. And also on top of that, I think each era in China has its phrases, words and expressions in vogue. And this is something I call the discursive hegemony. So once certain concepts, terms and words get into positions of dominance, this is the political correct thing to talk about. This is the correct way to talk about certain things too. I'm not saying what one said is wrong. I totally agree with that. People have that psychological trauma and they want to move away from it. But these days it's just not trendy or correct to talk about class. And so you don't talk about it, you, you talk about other things. I mean, it must be difficult to do research on something like class, which in China is seen as a, I mean, it's not just politically incorrect nowadays. It's almost kind of a dirty word, isn't it? It is a dirty word. And it's it almost something that many academics in China think is irrelevant. Why yeah. are you talking about this? Mm. It's, not, it's not trendy anymore. It's not fashionable. It's not cool. And why are you even talking about this? We don't talk about this. But to me, just because they don't want to talk about it doesn't mean I don't want to talk about it. It seems that the party has moved an extremely long distance on the way that it thinks about class since 1949. But there's still this sort of big divide between the ideological position and what is actually happening on the ground in practice when it comes to class. I mean, how does the party sort of square that divide? You put your finger on a very important issue in contemporary China. When I teach at the University of Sydney, I quite often use an analogy to describe the ideological shifts in People's Republic of China. It's almost like a swing, a pendulum swing left and right, left and right. 
And that has been going on since 1949 to the present. So when the pendulum swings to the left, the party would emphasize class and class struggle. And when it swings to the right, the party would emphasize economic development, not class or class struggle. Currently, when I talk about class and class struggle in China, a lot of my academic uh, colleagues would say, oh, that's not important. Many people don't talk about it in China, and it doesn't really have a bearing on the lives of ordinary people. That may well be the case, but as you said, there is a fundamental dilemma for the party. The dilemma is twofold, I think. In the official ideology, there are inconsistencies. And there is also a fundamental inconsistency between the official ideology and the practice, right? If you look at the official ideology, or rather the official ideologies, it ranges from Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, Deng Xiaoping theory, three represents scientific outlook to Xi Jinping thought. So it's a broad range of ideas. And how these ideas can be reconciled is a huge question. And another inconsistency is this, between the theory or the ideology and the practice. On the one hand, for example, the party continues to talk about Marxism. In practice, it doesn't practice everything that Marx used to talk about. One example is class struggle. Class struggle is central to Marxism, is certainly central to Marx's social plank of his theory, that is historical materialism, right? If you take away class struggle, that whole plank of Marxism collapses or disappears. So what does it mean to be saying that we believe in Marxism, but we don't talk about class struggle? It's a joke. Mm. I, I just think actually that class struggle uh, thing is quite interesting because if you want to get rid of the class struggle discourse, the one way the party has done is to promote consumption and so that people actually start to get a sense of uh, hope, you know. So it's really the ideology of hope, you know, the future is going to be better for you, you're going to be better off than now and everybody has a chance to get ahead. And so that kind of whole neoliberal discourse has actually taken root, right? And neoliberalism doesn't like class, doesn't like class discourse and there's no class struggle in neoliberal discourse. Because this basic consumption is that, uh, you know, as long as you find your position in the market, you will be fine. You, mm. you know, you'll get somewhere. But to have a kind of class based on consumption seems to be fundamentally anti-Marxist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you shift the focus away from production to consumption. And actually, neither Marx nor Weber wanted to define class on the basis of consumption. So you could say, one um, is right... One of the strategies the party has in place now is to shift people's attention away from production. Don't look at the production because once you look, you look at the means of production, ownership of it, you'll find what Marx meant by class. There will be exploiting classes, those who own the means of production and those who don't. So you have exploiting classes and exploited classes. So don't look there. Let's try to pay attention to consumption. 
and we try to increase everybody's income, certainly the middle class income, if we have a large enough middle chunk of society, society will be stable, most people will be happy. You have disadvantaged groups or Russia 20 in Chinese, we'll do something about it. We'll give them more, uh, better social welfare. We'll try to improve their lives a bit. Um, but the emphasis, our policy and work is on the middle reaches of society. I mean, in many ways, one of your uh, colleagues at Sydney University, Terry Warrenov, does some very interesting research looking at vocational education. And one of the ways, if you like, Chinese society is stratified is around education and what access you have to education. And the people who are in vocational education in many ways are locked out of a higher quality education. Can't, as in Australia, you can go from a technical college to a university. In China, you simply can't do that. It won't transfer across. So in a way, the people who are in the Dazhan or the Zhongzhan, these technical colleges, are really locked out of any sort of um, higher income or middle class aspirations. But they don't feel that way. They don't feel like they're working class. They still, through their consumption activities, aspire to being part of the middle class. Is this really the trick? I mean, does, does it work? And in your research, Wanning, have you found that people go beyond their circumstances and through consumption see themselves differently? I think there is a, a huge disjuncture between how they're perceived objectively or as a sort of a sci- evidence of scientific research and how people experience their class positions in everyday situation. Again and again, I find it really amazing that the scholars would actually go on and study the rural migrant workers, uh, you know, see them as the members of the disadvantaged community because there's a euphemism in the Chinese policy term to, to describe these people, um, but if you actually go and talk to the people there, you know, it, you know, they have their life, they have their dreams, they are bemused by the fact they are members of the disadvantaged communities. So I think that they actually probably also through consumption trying to appear or aspire to be something better or a little bit higher than the way they're perceived by others. I definitely think there is a a difference between class as experienced subjectively and class that is defined and studied objectively. And you've both talked about class anxiety. Is it a feature of life in China today that you found through your research? I think so, yes. I think there's anxiety. I think particularly when class relations in China are still so fluid, and unstable, and there are a lot of people, I would like to call them probational middle-class people. You know, they have education, they are not professionals, but they are nevertheless quite young and struggling to get a foothold in the city. You know, they're mortgaged up to their neck, and their life is really, really hard. You know, you get that from Woju, uh, you know, those people, Yizhu, or ant tribes, you know, the people who are trying to survive in the big cities and now starting to wonder I can't survive in Beijing, Guang, Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou. I might I have to scale down, go to a tier three city. And so they're wondering, you know, is there a place for me in the big city? Can I actually make it to the middle class? And if I can't, you know, am I sleeping down? And how am I going to deal with this precarity, if you like? So I think that the whole notion of precarity studies is actually quite resonant in China because there's extreme level of uncertainty and precarity there. Mm, I mean, one um, anecdote you shared with me before, uh, it's cliched to talk about um, the show If You Are The One, it's called in Australia, and Fijian uh, uh, The anecdote everyone knows about is the, the BMW, the crying in the back of the BMW. 
But one thing you mentioned to me, which was far more revealing, is how the TV station, that's um, Jiangsu Satellite TV Station, tried to address concerns around that when uh, people started to you know, ask questions about what this TV show was for. And one of their approaches you told me about. Yes. Uh, after the BMW episode, and Jiangsu TV got into trouble and was effectively told by SAFT, that is a television governing body, you know, clean up your act, your show is too vulgar. You're expressing too much a reality of social inequality and it's not good for social stability what you're doing. So you need to do something about that. So they've done quite a few things. One of them is to add a Carter member from a party school, that is the Miss Huang Han, as one of the hosts. And the other thing they have done is to show that we actually would like to provide a platform for the rural migrant workers who have trouble finding a marriage partner or getting a date. So they actually said, okay, let's do this. We will do a special episode. In fact, we do two episodes that's reserved exclusively for rural migrant workers. So they got 24 women contestants sitting there, all from rural migrant workers' background. And then uh, they also got a male guest to come in and trying to get a date. But they actually have made a, a fundamental mistake. All the men, they are also rural migrant workers, right? So rural migrant workers, the young men probably don't mind going out with these young women, but these young women don't necessarily want to go out with these young men because they are actually trying to go up a little bit in, in finding a marriage partner. So nobody wants to go out with this man. So one after the, this male guest walks off the stage looking really dejected and really disappointed. He, and was, that, he was turned down by all 24. Of course. I mean, it is not uncommon for this male guest to be turned down anyway because these women are so ruthless, right? <laughs> But actually to, you know, to be actually turned down and then realize that actually, what am I doing coming here without any money, any property to my name? What was I thinking about? And if that happened again and again too many times, that doesn't look good from the point of view of the TV station who's trying to window dress their concern for the community. They did a couple of episodes that didn't work very well. But what's interesting about these two failed episodes is not only that it failed, it's actually the, the middle-class scholars, uh, academics, actually, the, the kind of critique they have actually done on these two episodes and basically say, you're so cruel. You do not actually provide an outlet for these women to go up. You only give them rural migrant male workers to choose from. Why don't you get some university-educated city people to to come as male guests and see what happens? That's a great story. It says many things. It certainly says a lot about class anxiety in Chinese society. I think there's more class anxiety in China than in Australia. After all, in Australia, we have something called the tall poppy syndrome. People are not keen to stand out from the crowd. But in China, I think in many ways, it's the opposite. To stand out from the crowd is important. So social distinction is something that drives many, many things um, there. To use education as an example, Graham raised the question about education in relation to social mobility. One fundamental change I see happening is that in the past, you know that 
Confucian emphasis on universal education. It doesn't really matter what sort of social background you are from. Everybody is entitled or can benefit from a good education. And indeed, I think in imperial China, one of the major means of social mobility is education. So long as you can afford some basic education, you can move up the scale. That root of mobility is very much gone in the reform era. One thing I have argued again and again is the intervention of politics or political power in that process. Mm. For example, it's not just the politics, but it's also economic capital. If you have a lot of money, or if a child has rich parents, they can buy a good education. It's, in fact, it's very, very important to be able to afford a good, good education for the children, to get into a good primary school, a good secondary school, a good university. Even if you get a good education, it doesn't mean you're getting a good job. You still need to have the social networks. Mm. You still need all kinds of different capital. Your educational qualification alone is not enough. You need political capital, mm. economical capital, social capital, and, and all yeah. others. So the function of education in social mobility has decreased, yeah. I think. See, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, mm. it's still possible to talk about 知识改变命运, right? Education will change your destiny, right? So that's why so many rural migrant workers work so hard all their life in order to support their children because they believe education is the way out of this. But just in the last decade or so, I think this kind of disillusion has already surfaced and basically people realise that actually it doesn't matter. Even if my son finally managed to go to university, you know, I worked so hard to raise money to pay for his education. When he finally comes out of the university, he still won't get a job or he won't get a good job because there are so many other people who have guanxi and who have cultural capitals and a connection with the power, they are in a better position to get these jobs. So I think now that there's a whole discourse of a lun, that is, education is useless, has come back again. Mm. Or in many ways, it might even be more complicated because if you look at who's most advantaged in the Chinese education race, it's the, not the children who are educated within China, it's the children who are sent abroad um, to be educated and to develop their social networks um, abroad amongst the very elite of, of Chinese society. And in many ways, when I look at Chinese classrooms these days, if you go to Peking University and ask any classroom who's from a, a, a Nongmin background, no one's going to raise their hand because the scholarship system doesn't exist anymore. Um, and in the 80s, you would still have some peasant kids at, at Beijing University. But now, no, you won't, you won't find them there. So in many ways, uh, I see education playing a role in a sense that it cuts them out of the social networks. It cuts them out of the political networks that they might develop while at university. That's not even open yeah. to them. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if the party is worried about the social stability consequences mm -hmm. of this disillusion with yeah. education and this underclass that we are seeing. It is worried about that. And that is why I remember a few years ago when Li Keqiang made a, a government report speech and he made a point of saying that we must actually do something to free up room for mobility for the people at the bottom. Because if people at the bottom, which is very large in number, do not have any room for mobility, that's a very serious trigger 
for social instability and discontent. So that's why all this discourse about we must recognize them and pay respect to them for the work they do, it's all kind of a lip service, if you like, that that thing is very important to to, to pay because uh, not only because of fact, in theory, the workers, the peasants, you still be the masters of the nation, but in reality, you, you have to actually do something to appease that sense of discontent because otherwise chaos might ensue. Looking forward, do you think that the party will try to do some kind of ideological reassessment of class or is it just too sensitive a topic? Is it opening? I mean, does it make them look too much like sort of massive hypocrites to even go there? It is very difficult because on the other hand, the party cannot say we are going to renounce Marxism or we are going to renounce the funding ideologies of the party. So for a long, long time, I think that official statements will stay because they're written into the constitutions of the People's Republic of China. They're written into the constitutions of the party. To make major changes like that would create the perception in society, certainly among the rank and file of the party state system, that the nature of the party has changed. And that's a perception that party certainly doesn't want anybody to have. But practically, how do you change the class scheme? Three represents has done that, but it's really an exercise of papering over the holes and glossing over the service. Instead of saying, okay, the people or the nation consists of the industrial workers and peasantry plus progressive intellectuals and urban dwellers. Other classes don't exist or they, they, don't, they don't come into the nation. Three represents the party now does not simply represent the revolutionary classes, but also the whole Chinese nation, everybody, including people who can be classified as bourgeois or even landlords, right? And that class scheme is extremely difficult to change. It's just almost impossible to do it. It will take a lot of theoretical or ideological somersaults to make that happen. I just don't see how. On paper, it looks fine, but don't poke into it because there are holes all over the place. And we don't want to talk about it either. And we believe in socialism. We believe in socialism with Chinese characteristics. Don't ask me what that means. I've tried to do that when I talk with colleagues uh, from Chinese delegations. Even high-ranking officials can't really give me a straight answer. That's sensitive. That's sensitive. Wanning Yanijia, thanks for joining us. Thank Pleasure. you very much. Thanks to our guests, uh, Wanning Sun and Yinjia Guo, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Wanning and Yingjie's research. This episode was recorded at the University of Technology, Sydney, and edited in Hallwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from the people at Xinhuarezi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and, of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Donta. Bye for now.